Welcome to episode 182 of This Week in Linux, recorded live January 22nd of 2022. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. If you're new to the show, this is a podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. On this week's episode, we have some distro news, some hardware news, and a ton of app news. All this and much more on your weekly source for Linux good news. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean and by Bitwarden. Before we get started with this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about the results for the poll of the new visuals. So I made a joke change on the visuals of the episode for 180, and that was to do a flip of the visuals from the previous style into a flip style for doing a 180. And then I got a lot of comments from people saying that they actually liked that style and would like for me to keep it. So I created a poll to ask people's opinion of the previous style versus the new style. And, well, the results are in. And it was pretty clear that more more people wanted to keep it than wanted to, wanted to go back to the original. So they wanted to keep the flip style with the content on the left and the camera on the right. So we're going to keep that. And uh, the poll ended with basically either people saying they don't have a preference or they prefer the flipped. So we're keeping the flipped. And uh, yeah, so thanks for participating in the poll if you did. And if you didn't, be sure to subscribe to the channel and make sure to hit the notification bell to get notified when new polls are being added in the future. Now, also want to let you know about the Linux Out Loud logo contest. It is still going on right now. Also, the Linux Saloon logo contest is going on right now. And you can participate in that. I'll have links in the show notes below for both of those contests. And if you win the contest, you get a $100 gift card for participating. And, uh, well, by the way, for, you don't know, for those who don't know, DLNX 10 is, is being renamed to Linux Out Loud. So if you, don't, if you haven't heard about what that show is it's that show being renamed and linux saloon is a really cool linux user group type of show where anybody from the community can join and participate whether it's live chat or in the video itself and that's going to happen again tonight uh, at 8 8 p.m eastern time if you'd like to check it out i also want to let you know that this live stream will be changing Uh, next week we're going to do a live stream on the network channel there might be a duplicate stream on this channel as well, just to have, you know, let people kind of do a gradual switch over. The episodes will still be published on this channel, but the uh, live streams will be all consolidated into a single channel. So the live stream for Linux Saloon, the live stream for Destination Linux, and the live stream for This Week in Linux will all be on the same channel to make it just easier to know where to go to get the streams. So that will be starting next week. Uh, so for those who have not participated in the live stream before, you can go to dlnlive.com to check it out in the future, and that will all start next week. Up first in the show, the Gnome Foundation made a blog post talking about the future of FlatHub and what they have planned to make it a better experience for users and developers. And there's a lot of cool stuff in here. Some I'm really excited. Uh, Add a process to verify first-party apps on FlatHub. This is great because this basically means that you can see if a Flatpak is uploaded by a developer or an authorized representative of the project or the software or the company. And this is really important because this is a fair complaint people have about FlatHub. Because right now, there is really no way to tell if it is officially packaged by a developer or a third-party packaging. Now, you can go and you can dig in and click the links of like who's packaged it and see and kind of figure it out. 
but it's not very easy to do. So making this a part of like the future of the of the actual platform itself is going to be awesome because it'll be a lot. You'd be safer to know that it's the officially managed. Will just be really nice to have that quick access. They also plan to publish a separate repository that contains only these verified first party uploads without any of the community contributed applications. So and this is good because if you want to choose. You can curate the Flathub repository if you only want to use verified apps. And also, they're doing another one where they're creating another repository with only free and open source applications, allowing the user to choose to have a fully curated experience however they want, which is really cool. They're also making it possible for those developers to collect donations and subscriptions with these first-party verified things, which is great because... I mean, one of the things that is, you know, kind of a problem with open source is the funding of the software because it's amazing that these projects are open or are free to use because it means it's the, the digital divide is lowered and lowered, and that's great. But also, you still need to fund the development. So the more and more kinds of ways that we can make that possible, the better. And I think it's really great that FlatHub is looking into doing something like that. They're also creating a user and developer login system to manage your apps. So if you uh, if you have like they're going to do like future enhancements to utilize this kind of thing, making it possible to have uh, you know different managing of tokens for direct binary uploads for the developers, and just you know make some nice you know benefits between the different kinds of systems that you use. Like for example, Electron is not that easy to do for flat packs right now, and this would make it easier to publish apps with stuff like Electron. So I'm excited to see many of these things. And uh, if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the blog post for their uh, further investments in the desktop Linux in the show notes. Up next in the show is really interesting because the Fedora project is putting in an effort to work on a way to support app indicators slash status notifiers. Well, this is more, most people would probably know them as system tray menu items. So the things that you have, like the menus for various applications that are in your system tray, these are what this was referring to when when I say app indicators. Now, this is actually one of the biggest complaints for GNOME detractors is the lack of app indicator, lack of system tray menus and that kind of thing. Now, there are some extensions like top icons and stuff like that that makes it possible to use them inside of GNOME, but they're not really that reliable uh, because the API is being changed multiple times for them. So it, it you know, there's even a, a case where one of them were com- one, one of the extensions was completely abandoned because the API switch. So they started looking into the app and app indicator protocol stuff. Now, this is really awesome because it's not it's more of a spec thing, not necessarily trying to make it work in GNOME. It's making it improve the spec overall for the app indicator protocol in general. So since the existing app indicator protocol is deemed unacceptable in some upstreams for certain projects, the current spec isn't perfect, and that's fair to say because it needs to, it might need to be recreated or fixed. Now, the reason, one of the reasons why that is argued that it needs to be improved and why it shouldn't be used is that containerized apps don't work well in the current spec. Now, I've seen various reasons why like system tray menus or app indicators were removed from GNOME in the past. Uh, but Flatpak-related issues like the containerized thing is really the only... It's the only one that makes sense to me for as an issue. I've seen other, like for reference, some one GNOME dev said that it was giving free advertising to the companies that are in the system tray. Like, what, mate? What'd you say? That makes no sense. Anyway, 
I am ecstatic about this to see this work being done, and I applaud the Fedora team for getting involved as well, as this will be a joint effort. And like I said, it's not about making a thing for a certain particular DE. It's about making an improved or new spec that could be used by all des desktop environments, which is fantastic. So I wish best of luck to the Fedora team and who everyone else who's involved in making this because this is a very important thing because even if someone, a developer of a particular desktop environment doesn't like these kinds of uh, protocols or doesn't like system tray menus, they're not really going to go away. You can't get rid of them and they are very important for certain applications where like sometimes you can't even close a certain application without the system tray menus. And at that point, you just have stuff running at all times. It's not ideal in those cases. So I'm really happy to see that work is being done to improve that for the entire ecosystem. So well done there. If you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, SUSE made an interesting announcement this week in that they are making a new technology and support solution for the enterprise space. SUSE has introduced SUSE Liberty Linux. Now, due to the changes with CentOS over the past year, the enterprise space has been quite exciting when it comes to updates and being featured on this show many times. We've talked about Alma Linux and other RHEL rebuilds, but SUSE jumping into this effort is not something I was expecting to see ever. So it's really interesting in that case. But it also is important to note that SUSE does not refer to this as a distro, but rather a technology and support solution. So there's a lot of differences in terms of like the rail rebuilds that you would expect. There's not a lot of information right now about this, but we do know some things about this, such as SUSE will be utilizing the open build service to build this, and that it should be compatible with rail 8.5, and also be compatible with packages from Apple repos, which is pretty cool. And apparently we'll also use the the SLEE kernel, which is the same as the OpenSUSE Leap kernel, which is 5.3, instead of the default uh, current rail kernel, which is the 4.18. And that suggests that it will diverge quite a bit from the Red Hat components due to having a much newer kernel. So, But that's really interesting to see what they're going to come up with this. As soon as we get more information about this, we will talk about this on a future episode. But before we move on to the next topic, I just wanted to let you know that SUSE and OpenSUSE are also working on something that's pretty cool, which is a new web-based UI for YAST. This will provide a GUI that can be used locally and also remotely so it's kind of similar to what Red Hat does with Anaconda or what they're doing with Anaconda with uh, cockpit tools. Uh, this is really interesting because a, a web UI is a very powerful in the sense that you could do it the remote factor. So you could have the same UI on both locally and remote, which is really cool. But also, it's very important to, to say that this is not a replacement for the existing. So if you want to use the CLI or you want to use the existing GUI, you can still do that. Uh, and this new installer is being called D-Installer, which I thought was kind of amusing because the name D-Installer makes me think the opposite of an installer, such as, you know, uninstall, you know, D-Install. It just... I just thought that was kind of funny. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this uh, SUSE Liberty Linux or the latest project for the deinstaller, you'll find links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we have some really cool news from Framework. The team at Framework have just announced this week that they have open sourced the source code for their embedded controller firmware. Based on Google's Chromium EC project, which is the EC firmware used in Chromebooks, the embedded controller is what talks with uh, low-level stuff like uh, power sequencing, uh, keyboard control, thermal control, battery charging, and stuff like that. So it is very important and really cool that they're open sourcing it. And they put it on GitHub, and it's 
under the BSD license. They didn't have to do this, in my opinion. I think it's because I was already really interested in this product. The laptop, the framework laptop is really cool. Uh, so, but it's great to see that they're doing it anyway. Uh, it keeps up with their commitment too to allow people to do whatever they want with the framework laptop, which is very very awesome. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the framework laptop, I will let you know about some, some details that are important that are critical to this thing. So for example, there's it's a modular laptop that is fully supported with Linux. There are two models. There's the pre-built version, and then there's the DIY version. Now, the DIY version is really cool. Now, it doesn't come with an operating system, so you have to put it on yourself, such as that's one that a lot of Linux people would get. But the reason I would want to get this one specifically is that they send you a kit in uh, like a kit form, and then you get to build the laptop yourself, which is really, really cool. It's, like I said, it's modular, it's upgradable, which is unheard of at this point with, you know, laptops these days. And the expansion card system is very cool because you can basically uh, remove ports and replace it with different ports and have different configurations, just whatever you need it to be is very awesome. And it makes it super flexible. Now, the really cool thing about this is that it has support for many different uh, Linux distributions and they have guides specifically of how to do it that are officially made by the framework team. And also, as a fan of Fedora, I just wanted to point out that they did say that Fedora is the best out-of-the-box experience. So that's pretty cool. If you're interested in Framework Laptop, it starts at $9.99 for the pre-built version or the DIY version starts at $7.49. So if you want to build it yourself like I mean, I do. And it also, just to be clear, it's not like you have to solder everything. It's a it's a kit, it's a DIY kit thing, but you still, it's pretty much like a solid approach. It's just like plug and play, that sort of stuff. So it's not that difficult to do the build it yourself. So I absolutely want to do it because it looks like a really fun thing to do. And if you'd like to learn more about the framework laptop, I'll have links in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now is the perfect time to dive into the DigitalOcean. Their new app platform service helps you build modern cloud-native apps for way less money. With the app platform, you can build, deploy, scale apps, and static websites faster and easier than ever before using a simple, intuitive interface. You simply point the app platform to your GitHub or GitLab repository and let it do all of the heavy lifting for you. Whether you're using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, or container images, all of this is supported on DigitalOcean's app platform. And by running the app platform on their own infrastructure, DigitalOcean keeps your, your cost significantly lower than with other products. Plus, it's built on top of DigitalOcean's Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. And as a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's app platform. I want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Last week was the inaugural episode of Linux Saloon, a new podcast here on the network. Linux Saloon is something we are so excited about because it is both a show and a Linux user group. It is open to anyone who would like to join in on the conversation, whether it be the live chat or directly on the show itself. 
This community-driven show is, is so cool, so be sure to check it out. It's happening live tonight after Twill at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, every Saturday, in fact. Uh, but anyway, the reason I'm bringing up Linux Saloon is that last week on the first episode of the show, there was a discussion about Linux Mint 20.3. It was a distro review of sorts talking about the experience people had with using Linux Mint's latest release. Now, this was very interesting and a lively discussion, and the subject of hardware enablement came up on the show, and I learned something that I didn't know existed from that show, and that is that Linux Mint has an Edge ISO, which comes with hardware enablement kernels available. And this week's they had they released the the ISO for Edge twenty point three, and this gives you the five point thirteen kernel instead of the default five point four kernel. And I just think it's pretty cool that Linux Mint is taking into consideration to have something like this. Now it does need to be noted that this is not going to have support for all of hardware. You know, like if you have the the most current hardware you're not going to be able to support that because that will need a newer kernel than the 5.13 and they get the hardware element stack from Ubuntu directly so that's how like that's why the difference between the 5.13 and 5.4 versus the current 5.16 and that sort of stuff but it's just really cool that there is some effort in making it possible to have this in case you have some hardware that won't boot Linux Mint uh, with the regular standard ISO. Now if you want to upgrade your uh, kernel in your in your existing system and you were already using the 5.4 because it did boot just fine you can still do that they have a tool to be able to upgrade the kernel if you want to do that but i just thought it was cool that they you know made it made this edge iso as well if you'd like to learn more about this i'll have links in the show notes up next in the show is the latest release of Wine. Uh, this is 7.0. This has been in development for a year and has had over 9,100 individual changes to make this release. Now, for those who are not familiar, Wine is what is used to make it possible to use uh, Windows applications and also play Windows games inside of Linux. And for those who are curious, Wine is a um, is a acronym for Wine is not an emulator because it's a little bit more than just an emulator. So anyway, Wine 7.0 is converting most of its components to a PE, which is portable executable format. This is going to provide better performance and compatibility. It's also going to improve some other things. Like for example, there's going to be some, like, well, when they, when eventually when they have everything comported over, this will enhance other things. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, they've improved the theming for built-in programs. They've uh, made better joystick support, uh, high DPI support for built-in apps. They updated the OpenCL support. They also uh, have support for uh, VK3, VKD3D 1.2 in this release. And they've improved support for running on Apple Silicon, which is the Apple M1 Mac sort of stuff. Uh, they've actually made improvements to the plug-and-play drivers and a ton of other changes. Now, the thing I, wanted to, I was talking about with the, the portable executable is with their new WoW64 architecture. This means 64-bit uh, Windows-on-Windows architecture, and it supports running 32-bit Windows applications inside of a 64-bit Unix host process. So once the remaining uh, modules are converted to PE, this will make it possible to run 32-bit applications without installing 32-bit Unix libraries, which is very, very cool. If you'd like to learn more about the latest release of Wine 7.0, I have links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we have some more app news. In fact, we have a lot of app news left because the rest of the show is app news. 
Uh, so we have the latest release of FFmpeg 5.0. This has been in development for nine months, and there's a lot of new stuff in here. There's a few new decoders, including uh, Native Speaks decoder, decoders for MSN Siren, GEM Image and Apple Graphics decoders, uh, big addition to the uh, video toolbox support for VP9, uh, and ProRes decoding and ProRes encoding. They've also have improvements on Vulkan support, notably uh, Vulkan filters, optimizations for the long arch platform, uh, slice threading for S uh, SWCL, uh, RTP packagizer for uncompressed video, support for lib placebo video, which is a fun uh, library name, lib placebo, a filter for uh, HDR stuff, uh, also numerous audio and video filters, such as uh, improvements for uh, segment late, uh, latency, decorrelation, and also several, several color filters, like so much more, like, Basically, FFmpeg is a very critical piece of the media management and, well, not media management, but media creation tools in Linux. So, for example, if you're not familiar with uh, video editors like Caden Live or PitTV or, well, Olive, anything, just insert any video editor in Linux and it's using FFmpeg to run it in the back end. Uh, also in conjunction with MLT, which, you know, that's a little bit more detailed. For anybody who's curious about that, let me know in the comments and I might make a video on how these things work. But it's really cool because there's also some interesting talk about doing time-based releases for FVMPEG and implementing an LTS release. This would be great to see, though it's only being discussed in the project like, you know, as a maybe. has not been officially announced just yet, but it'd be very cool to see if they do that. If you'd like to learn more about FFmpeg 5.0, links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do it? Well, Bitwarden provides you with many different types of tools, such as a secured vault to store all of your passwords, an auto generator to create those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in passwords on login forms so you don't have to do any of this stuff. Plus, you can access your data across many different types of devices, like your web browser, your mobile apps, desktop application, or even on the command line. Plus, Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end -end encryption on your local devices before it ever leaves your devices, so you know you're the only person with access to your data. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And also, I think you want to check out their premium accounts because their premium account starts at less than a dollar per month. That's right. Less than a dollar per month will give you access to all sorts of cool stuff, such as a two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, Priority Customer Service, Bitwarden Send, so much for less than a dollar per month. Plus, they also have business accounts and family accounts. So if you want to help someone get started and in your family with password management, they make it really easy to do that. So check it out. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN and make the smart move like many of the community have and get your account at Bitwarden. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is QPrompt. QPrompt 1.0 has been released, and this is a teleprompter application for Linux. It also works on other platforms like Windows and Mac, and also uh, work for Android. And now, this is really cool. I want to talk about some features that it has, and also want to talk about my experience, because I'm actually using it to make this episode right now. So, 
Uh, we'll get to that in a bit. But first of all, the features it includes is it works with studio teleprompters, uh, tablet teleprompters, uh, webcam, webcams and phones, and that sort of stuff. Plus, uh, it also makes it possible to easily paste uh, content from uh, other software without much of a hassle. Uh, I did that exact thing to do this test. Also, it has a jitter-free experience, so when it scrolls, it doesn't like kind of bounce, and it's just a very smooth scroll, which is, I also have experienced that. It's fantastic. Uh, very customizable, and you can make the changes on the fly, which which I do quite often to change the scroll speed. Very nice. Uh, you can use markers to skip anywhere on the script uh, if you're using a script. Uh, multiple screens as a, as a possibility. There, there's background transparency, which allows your monitor uh, to... Uh, basically, you can see the the the, the teleprompter as also maybe you have your camera feed in behind it or your OBS or whatever. You can see stuff beneath it, which is really nice. It also has a built-in chronometer, so you can keep track of how long you're doing a certain topic. They also estimate uh, remaining time for you if you want, and so many more things. It even has uh, rich text formatting, and uh, it's, it's native Linux software, which is very, very cool. And it's available on all the three universal formats like flat packs, uh, snaps, app images. Uh, so very nice. Now, this is something I've been using for the entirety of this episode. And this is such a nice uh, application. I tried the, this, the predecessor to this, which was the imaginary teleprompter. And it's a, it, was, it was pretty good. It was decent. But this is very nice. It pretty, it's, it's super customizable. You can change the way the fonts work. You can change the opacity uh, directly inside of the application, which is really nice for people who are not using Plasma because, you know, it doesn't matter what DE you're using at that time. I use the plasma opacity change myself, so I don't. I wasn't going to use that built-in thing. But it's really nice that it's built-in for people who are not using plasma who don't have that like already available to them. But you can change the font size really quickly. You can change the uh, they they call it velocity, which is the speed of the uh, the text scroll. You can also make it do a reverse scroll. I found out. Uh, so it's just really nice. It's uh it's I'm. I'm a big fan of it so far, so I might use it again in next week. We'll see. But uh, thus far, it has worked out quite well. So thank you very much for the developer of QPrompt. Uh, it has come in handy for this episode and potentially future episodes too. If you'd like to learn more about QPrompt 1.0, links in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of Flameshot, which is Flameshot 11.0. So Flameshot is a powerful but very simple to use open source screenshot software tool. Now, what's really cool about this thing is that basically you can do uh, annotations on the fly with Flameshot. So if you uh, do a screenshot, you can quickly do arrows, draw shapes, put text on it, all directly from the same interface. It's very nice. Now, there were a couple of things that kind of held me back from using uh, Flameshot as my daily driver for screenshots, and that was uh, mostly because of the... Uh, it didn't have the ability to do uh, time delay to activate the screenshot. It does now. It also didn't have a way to easily configure like a, a region to be more specific, to be like, I always want this size. And I want to be actually, if I could be cool to have it this size and this location for the region, uh, it has that now. So those are two of the main things that I wanted to talk about for the latest release of 11.0. They also introduced a config file checker that has been implemented in some, it, basically if there's any kind of uh, changes in the config file semantics that creates a break, it will give you errors letting you know what needs to be fixed and that sort of stuff. So that's very cool. They've also added an on-screen help menu that has been, uh, it's, well, they already had one, but they made it more uh, clear and 
anymore, and it dynamically updates the hotkeys based on the user-defined hotkeys if you change it. Uh, the, the About screen now lists system information. Now, this might not seem that useful, but it's very cool because it allows you to copy this data for easily, easy accessing it in bug submission forms. So you can, and when you're doing a screenshot, you may want to also give them information about what kind of hardware you have, and this does that kind of stuff, which is pretty cool. That's a really good idea. Never even thought I'd want that, but when they when I saw it in the sh in the the release notes, yeah, that's a fantastic feature. Uh, Flameshot can now also be run in on a one-off mode, so it won't be in your system tray automatically. You can just say I only want to run it one time and then close. Uh, but they also made some changes to the command line. They've added some more features, such as the region thing I mentioned. Uh, and I also requested that feature, so I was really happy to see it being added to this release. Uh, there's so many more things. Now, like, they've even made it possible so every file format is supported by the underlying system can now be used when uh, saving a file. Uh, so many cool... Like, there's actually one thing I wanted to mention before I forget. There is a... A color picker built inside of Flameshot, but they also made it where their latest version has this zoom capability that they added the color picker to. So you can actually zoom into it and then uh, get like the exact pixel of a wallpaper or whatever and get the color, like the hex, the, the hex code for that color. Just really nice. Uh, and also a, a thing that I just want to mention because it's not that important, but I think it is important for the most part because there's some projects who still have this weird kind of approach. Uh, they changed the version numbering to a major minor approach. Uh, and the previous version was, for example, a 0.10.0, which to some people implies that it isn't production ready. But it is. I mean, Flameshot is great. So I'm glad to see that they're, that this project is uh, you know, changing it up so it's doing 11.0 to let people know that it is you can use it. Don't worry. It's not, it's not a, a beta release. And it's, it's, I've mentioned this before in episodes here and there about various projects that are zero point whatever. If it is a production ready project, please don't use that zero point whatever system. I think it's called Simver, something like that. It, just use the major minor instead or whatever. Uh, I would be much better for the, you know, the average user noticing what version to try. Now, anyway, if you want to check out Flameshot, it is available as a flat pack, snap, app image, and it's also packaged in most distros. You know, depending on how quick they're to update, you might not have the latest version, but you can get it in all the universal formats, which is really nice. And if you'd like to learn more about flat, sh uh, flat shot, that's not the words. If you'd like to learn more about Flameshot, I'll have links in the show notes. Up next in the show is Chikovka. 4.0 has been released. Chikovka is a really cool application. It is a deduplicator and it also helps you remove unnecessary files and it's it like, you know, unnecessary cache and that sort of stuff. Uh, Chikovka is uh, probably named just to make it hard for me to say it, but I think I said it right. It's a really cool application. I've used it in the past and it does help a lot to find deduplication and it makes it a lot easier to do because you can use like the diff command and stuff like that, but this makes it much easier for people who want to use a GUI and if, in case they have a lot of duplicated files as, as well. Uh, but this is also have a really good performance in this latest release. They've improved the performance. So I didn't necessarily think I needed to have it improved, but thank you. So... <laughs> They have multi-threaded support added for collecting files to check. So basically, it speeds it up anywhere between two to three times faster, uh, also depending on your hardware. So they did this test on a four-thread processor with an SSD. If you have an NVMe or you have a more powerful pro uh, processor, 
it might even be faster than that. Uh, they've in, they've refactored the entire uh, GUI code uh, with new UI improvements. They added support for raw images. So NEF, CR2, KDC is added support. They also added support for finding similar videos, which is really interesting. And also approximate comparison of music. Now, I don't know how this works and how they're able to use this to find the music or the videos, but it's really cool that this is possible. So I can't wait to try this out in the latest version because I'm just curious. And I'm going to make some duplicates specific to find these things to so see what happens. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about it, uh, I'll have a link to Chikafka in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release of the open source VoIP voice chat program, Mumble, and this version is 1.4 has been released. This has been in development for over two years, and there's a lot of new stuff in this latest release. There's a new plugin framework. There's a, a full-featured search dialog for users and channels. This is for somebody who has like a, a large server they connect to with a bunch of people. It makes it easier to search and find the different channels you want to use. They also added something called channel listeners, which is pretty interesting. You can essentially join a room to just listen and be listening to multiple rooms at the same time while not being in the room specifically. Now, you can't actually talk in the room if you use a listener, but you can still hear multiple rooms. Let's say you want to monitor a room while you're in a different room. You could do the channel listener system for that, which is pretty cool. And it also does indicate when someone is listening in on a room, so it's not like a spying tool or anything. Uh, and it's, it's similar. it works similar kind of how the linked channels work, except instead of based on channel to channel, it's the user specifically. So when you go into it as a listener, it will say your name, then have like a little ear symbol next to it. Anyway, uh, they also introduced a new uh, UI called Talking UI, which is an overlay for people who are not gamers for showing who is talking. Now, they already have a gamer overlay for those who want to have it showing on the game on when you're pl playing a game. But if you want to have it where it's just basically a smaller UI, a smaller window that doesn't have all the different buttons and it doesn't show all of the channels, it's more of like minimizing only showing the channels and the people that are in at a given time. And they've also done a lot of various other UI improvements. But they also added something that's pretty interesting, which is the stereo audio support for streams. So by default, Mumble uses a mono audio. But this is kind of like... You know, using the uh, stereo streams for being able to, you know, have stereo audio for music bots, for example. Uh, they also added support for Markdown and the text messages and a lot more. Uh, I'm really a big fan of Mumble. There are some things that I'm, I like there. They could do some better improvements, like if they did, if they improved the noise suppression, which would be, would be really good for Mumble because it doesn't really have much, if at all any noise suppression, but uh, Mumble is really cool. And my favorite part about Mumble is if you're doing recordings, you can actually make it so it records each individual person separately on your local system, which so instead of like you just click one record button and it makes a separate file for each person, just really good idea. I've used that in many cases. It's very cool. Uh, anyway, if you'd like to learn more about Mumble 1.4, link in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via Patreon, sponsors, and others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. And if you do become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between topics and to just hang out every week after the show in the patron-only post-show. There's also a pre-show too, but... That that's more of me setting up stuff and the patrons talking about other things and then you know but the patron post show happens every week right after the show and we do it a little bit on the stream but then much longer however long people want us to hang out after the stream 
uh, and right up until the Linux Saloon, of course, which happens at the end, uh, well, not the end of the Patron Pro Show, but it happens 8 p.m. Eastern every Saturday now, so go check that out. You can also support the show by ordering the Linux Everywhere t-shirt or the This Week in Linux shirt at dlnstore.com. We also made a bunch of changes to dlnstore.com, so if you've been there in a while, there's going to be a lot of different stuff. There's new products. We even have, uh, you know, there's hats, mugs, hoodies, stickers, and stuff like that, but also we added a new desk mat stuff, which is basically a gigantic mouse pad. Very cool. Uh, I can't wait to get mine. So if you want to check it out, dealinstore.com. And if you like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hard Radix, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the network. So check it out. And just a reminder, this show, this show, also Linux Saloon, but this show too, is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time or 1800 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each and every week by going to dealinlive.com. Dot com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanell with the Destination Linux Network, and I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux. Good news.